Hello, and welcome to the Foothills Deeper Pod, a podcast for all of us looking to bring more love and more courage into our daily lives so we can love the hell out of this world. I'm Reverend Elaine, one of your hosts. This is the first podcast in our current series in which we're examining what it means to serve, what it means to be in community. And this may sound kind of church-centric, but it really applies to any of us who are in relationship with any other human beings or any community or any of us who depend on anyone other than ourselves, which is all of us. We're calling this series Terms of Service, which I personally think is a pretty clever title. (laughs) And we're diving into all of the fine print of what it means to be in community in this world where so many of us are feeling overwhelmed or just plain busy, yet we're longing for a sense of meaning, a sense of belonging, and maybe we're feeling unclear about where to begin or about how much is enough in terms of service. Reverend Sean Neil Barron, who usually hosts this podcast, delivers the sermon at the heart of this episode. It's a sermon all about mutual aid as a powerful tool for caring for each other. And the fact that mutual aid is not just, it's not a fringe practice, it is actually central to the heart of congregational life and central to the deepening of the spiritual life. After we hear from Sean, we will dive right into a conversation between Sean and the Reverend Dr. Cheryl Johnson, author of the book, Serving Money, Serving God, Aligning Radical Justice, Christian Practice, and Church Life. There is so much to learn in this conversation, so much about the ways that the finance and stewardship approaches of so many congregations tend to end up emphasizing neoliberal values and entrenching white privilege. So Sean and Cheryl talk about what we have to do to change that. So without further ado, let's begin with Sean's sermon. When I was a kid, my parents gave me a rather unfortunate nickname, Poop Magnet. because I somehow always seemed to find and step in dog poop wherever we were. Playing in the park, playing in our backyard, somehow I always ended up with dog poop on my shoe. I was all too familiar with that squishy, mushy feeling, you know, when that ground has that decidedly fecal viscosity. or the smell that wasn't just because of a temporary proximity, but was actually following you around. No, it's not that I wanted to do this, mind you. My brain was just somehow otherwise preoccupied, it seemed. Now, when you're stepping in dog poop, it's sort of like the story that Eleanor and Lauren told us. It's a situation that feels urgent and in need of being addressed. When you're wiping off your shoe or looking for a hose, you aren't likely to think, hmm, I should clean up all the dog poop in the park. You just want to get the situation. Only recently, when I was reflecting on this, did I realize something. That having lived with this nickname for most of my young childhood, I realized that I had internalized a sense of almost personal moral failing about my inability to navigate the outdoors without stepping in it. And that I had never really questioned this. I had never really questioned, huh, 
was it actually totally my fault? I mean, sure, I'm a little bit absent-minded, not always aware of my body, but shouldn't you be allowed to be a kid and play around with some sort of reckless abandon, be in a community that picks up after itself? I mean, wasn't it my dad's chore, after all, to clean up the backyard? <laughs> and why were my neighbors not cleaning up after their dogs in our local park? I never asked the question, was I set up? <laughs> was I set up to fail? There are many reasons that we might internalize feelings that our situation and circumstances are our faults especially living in this country, living in this moment. I know a lot of us, depending on our age, feel like it's somehow something's wrong with us if we're not able to navigate the new digital technological landscape that seems to be changing all the time. You might feel too old to figure it out. Some of us navigate racialized messages that tell us that we are lazy or untrustworthy. Those with mental or chronic health conditions have stories that tell us that, that you can't do what you used to do and therefore you aren't worthy. Or because you can't do everything you'd like to do, you are unworthy. Or those people, those of us of sexual and gender minorities, as we live in this particular moment where people are debating our very right to exist and decide our gender destiny, we may wonder, are we the problem here if so many people can debate our worthiness? It's too easy. I'm sure you have your own story in which you've internalized a narrative that exists outside, a story how how you are the problem rather than interrogating whether or not the system set you up to fail. Because often the moral of the story is generally that there's something wrong with us and not the system. And even when we intellectually know that it's actually not all our fault, it's hard to feel that way, especially when it's someone else, often people with power and ability, who are the people who get to claim the center of society and are the ones who judge what is deemed your fault or when you are set up. And what this tells us, though, is that when we struggle, we don't just need help with what we are struggling with. We also need to transform that feeling, that story that we have within ourselves. It's not only that we struggle, we inherit a story of our own failure. And that story and that shame needs to be transformed as well. Now, back in the 1960s, which was a tumultuous time in this country, the Black Panther Party organized something revolutionary. They started a program in which they fed children breakfast. 
Now, many people know of the Black Panthers because of their militant black power organizing and the ways that they challenged both civil rights leaders and the American establishment as they were fighting against the ways that racism, law enforcement, and the American government were colluding. They were an organization that did not believe in integration into white American society. They wanted to fundamentally change society. And they didn't trust the government to help their community because their government had not helped them ever before. In fact, the government spied on and killed many leaders of the Black Panther Party. But this program, the dawn of the free breakfast program, did something transformative. They saw a need in their communities that children were hungry. And we know that a child that is hungry isn't a child that is happy, is not a child that can learn. And so they realized that targeting that and making sure that all children in their communities had food would be a big blessing. So they started this program where people could come in, where families could come in and eat together. They met the need of the hungry belly, but it wasn't all that they did in the program because they knew the need wasn't simply food. Because under the pressures of white supremacy and capitalism, if you're struggling to meet that model of the American dream, it's not just hard when you're hungry and tired. It's hard because society tells you that if you are struggling, you are somehow a failure, that you're somehow deficient, and maybe somehow unworthy of being helped, that you should grab those bootstraps and pull yourself up. So what you need then, if you're in that situation, is not just respite from the grind, a meal for your family. What you need is some affirmation, some healing for that shame too. You need some affirmation and some analysis about why you got there in the first place. And you need a sense of empowerment that tells you, hey, you can be a part of transforming this situation, not just for you, but for other people. And that's what the program did. It wasn't simply food for children. It was a community that said, hey, you are worthy. We're not looking down at you because you're struggling. You are worthy of more than the scraps on the table that you might have been offered. And the reason you're in this situation, the reason you are struggling is not because you are failing, but because you were set up to fail by this economic system, set up to fail by the system of politics, set up to fail by the white supremacist system that we live in, the way that your labor and your sweat has for generations never rendered the proper payment. Affirmation, analysis, and then empowerment, because at the breakfast table, you were invited to get involved politically in changing the conditions that caused the need for the food in the first place. And that started based on the relationships that were forged eating together. You'd be invited to serve food for one another. You'd be invited to get involved in political causes. You'd be invited to build relationships. So when someone was struggling with a racist landlord, you had a rapid response network of people you could call that would show up to boycott and protest and make sure that that house was being habitable, that you got what you deserved. The breakfast program was a gateway into the affirmation of worthiness, into an analysis of social conditions and the empowerment for the participation in the struggle. Fundamentally, a lot of our classic understandings of how we serve one another, well, they create very clear distinctions between the served and the serving, the helper and the healthy. One group provides to the other, and the other simply 
receives. Charity and direct service can somehow can become so focused at the problem at hand that we forget the power of relationship, of affirmation and analysis that are essential ingredients to the solution. Not only that, but inviting people to be part of a movement for greater justice that might transform the conditions that got them there in the first place is not only meaningful, but is necessary to get to the core of the situation, the core of the systemic problem, but also the core of the heart situation at hand. To address the soul wound that is so often accompanies the need that we are trying to serve. A soul wound that is not because of the need, but because of a society that sees being of need as being unworthy. But that's not the only soul wound at play here. And I want to speak to the majority of Unitarian Universalists here. The majority of Unitarian Universalists happen to be white, happen to be educated, happen to be middle class. And chances are, if you are one of those people, you have never had to depend upon public assistance programs or few, few forms of mutual aid like breakfast programs to survive. Chances are you've never experienced the precariousness of existence and how your very lives might be in the hands of a faceless bureaucrat or the interpretation of a specific government policy or the pittance that we give families to survive under, under SNAP and other forms of welfare. And not having those experiences makes an imprint on your soul. And there is a danger of that imprint, a danger that we can become so out of touch with the reality that we can become like the state senator in Minnesota who just this very week spoke out against guaranteeing free meals for all students in his state because he, quote, has yet to meet a person in Minnesota who is hungry. Despite the fact that one out of six students in Minnesota is food insecure, meaning they don't know where their next meal will be available, you're wondering, 33% of Coloradans lack reliable access to nutritious food. If you're in that category of this Unitarian Universalist majority, you may, become, you may start to think in your life because you have been more likely a giver than a receiver of service. And that has an impact on who you start to think of yourself. I mean, think about it. In your life, do you feel like you've been more on the receiving side of service and aid or the rendering? And if the balance is tipped, often we can fail to realize the challenges, the structures, and the soul realities at play when we are trying to be of service to one another. When we are always the people that render service, there is a danger. We start to see ourselves as always ones that can help and never ones that need help. Our ego starts to tell us that we somehow maybe did something to deserve where we are in life rather than understanding the structures of race and class and power that brought us where we are. Our ego starts to tell us that maybe the person who is struggling is doing so because of something personal and not systemic. And we begin to potentially see people that are seeking help, needing help because of the injustices of our world as somehow unable to help themselves or help others or be of service. 
we become a danger because we begin to hoard power, our power, threatening to take our privilege, our resources, resources and our wealth home with us when organizations we are a part of make decisions we disagree with. We become a danger when we hoard power, when we oppose things like changing land codes to allow affordable housing and density in our city. Which can mean that even as we serve when we are seeking to help right the injustices of this world, we may be making that soul wound even more painful. Perpetuating systems that keep power and hold narratives of deficiencies of others and our own unneediness. We start to warp how we see the world. It warps how we serve. There's this church in Philadelphia that does this thing that I think is so remarkable and sort of scary. It's called Circle of Hope Church. It's an evangelical church. And they have this program that every time I think about it, I, I keep being like, who could we ever do it here? Here's what it is. They have a ministry that is called their debt annihilation ministry. They noticed in their community, many people were struggling with credit card debt. And they created a ministry based focused on paying off that credit card debt in community. But this is how they did it. And notice your own reactions as I'm saying this. They formed groups of six to 10 people who were all in debt. Group members agreed to be fully transparent about their finances, sharing with each other their credit card bills, bank statements, and everything. How are you feeling? <laughs> In the group, they all committed to continue making those minimum payments on their credit cards to avoid any penalties, but they pooled extra money and got some seed money from the larger church to start paying down each other's credit cards. How they did it is they looked at all the credit cards and found the ones that had the highest interest rates, and they started with that person. And month after month, they would make payments on that person's credit card until it was down to zero. And then they'd move on to the next person and pay it down until they got to the person that had the lowest interest rate and then paid down their card. Imagine a ministry that says you are not alone in this problem. You are not alone in this struggle. And the people who are helping you out are not some distant person, some distant bureaucracy, but in fact, someone else who is struggling with it too. That you are not incapable of writing your situation, you just need community to unlock it. And that people who are in the same situation with you can be of service to you, even if you feel so ashamed. Imagine the liberation of being in a community, of working towards debt freedom together. Imagine how terrifying. Imagine how soul nourishing. Examples like this in the breakfast program are examples of mutual aid. 
Dean Spade, a queer and trans liberation activist who always looks at things through a lens of racial and economic justice and is currently a professor at Seattle's University School of Law, defines mutual aid as the collective coordination to meet each other's needs, usually from an awareness that the systems we have in place are not going to meet them. Here is some food. And the reason you're hungry is this unjust economic system, and we can't trust the government or anyone else to feed you, so we're going to figure out how to do it, me and you, us, together. Mutual aid projects are participatory. They help people develop skills for collaboration, participation, and decision-making. They work together in a non-hierarchical way to solve the problem. It breaks the division between the people who are giving help and receiving help because you become equal partners in the work. The premise of mutual aid is that the work of freedom will not be done if we continue to make real the divisions between those who need help and those who give help. That we will not be liberated by nonprofits whose donors and grantors' personal opinions hold more sway than the people who constitute the community that they are serving. Mutual aid programs look like in Puerto Rico after the hurricanes, the establishments of microgrids where neighbors connect their homes together, connect solar panels and batteries and wind turbines and build small resilient networks of power, not trusting that a government or organization from the city or the mainland is gonna come restore power, but they can do it for themselves. And that when disaster strikes, they can be the ones to prioritize who actually needs the power the most, probably their neighbor with the dialysis machine, probably their local clinic, those people, they can prioritize as they shift on the ground one-to-one. -one. It's like the Oakland Power Project, which is a system in which a community has come together to create an alternative to calling the police. They've trained neighborhoods and neighbors to respond to mental health crises, chronic health issues, and interpersonal conflicts, keeping everyone, but especially black and brown people, away from involvement with law enforcement because we know the deadly implications of law enforcement in this country. It also, mutual aid, happens in church in the small groups and the relationships that gather. First, maybe for friendship, but then morph into rapid response networks of care that show up for each other, accompany people. I see it over and over again. All of these projects break the division, not just because it is effective, but because it is human. Because we are always, by virtue of our very humanity, dependent on one another. We are always both always in need of help, always able to render help. And if that's the case, we must reorient our way of relating, of serving one another, the terms of service of our lives, so that we can recognize that. No masters, no flakes. I remember when I was a chaplain in the hospital. I would go and visit patients before surgery, as they were admitted, it was a really beautiful and sacred opportunity. But a month in, my teacher, my mentor, gave me one piece of advice. I was feeling sort of awkward about the experience. He said, at the end of each visit, if it feels right, why don't you tell the person that you're visiting that you were grateful for the encounter? 
What I realized when he said that was I actually was, most of the time, grateful for the encounter. I mean, there was that one lady who needed to tell me about her church and how it was a real church because they didn't let gay people in. Wasn't super grateful for that encounter. <laughs> but for many of them, even as I was offering the service that our caring listeners do, like Susan talked about, the trading space, I too was receiving something in that moment. What would it mean for me to turn to that person and say, thank you for giving me something, especially in this moment where you feel like you may not be able to give anyone anything because you're in the hospital. Now we have a food bank here at Foothills. It's a mobile food bank twice a month. How many of you have participated in it before? Now during the pandemic, the mobile food bank here shifted its operations to be more efficient, less contact, right? To make sure that during COVID, uh, we weren't exposing each other unnecessarily. And I was talking to Gretchen about this the other day as they adopted this drive up model where you kind of show up and your food be delivered to you. It's much faster that um, even though the need for food is higher than it was, utilization is down. And the folks at the Food Bank for Larimer County, they believe that the reason that that is the case is because there is less relationship and connection involved in the experience. That driving up and getting food, yes, fills the need of getting food, but it doesn't fill that other soul need of being seen, of connecting with other people in line, with the volunteers, that it creates, it abstracted the human part of the experience. Those small interactions that can unlock feelings of validation that they could actually give to one another even if they were receiving support in the way of food. That as the system got more efficient, it lost that human, that liberatory aspect, that way that it in some small way disconnected that unbalance between helper and helpee. We need to serve one another, not because others need help, but because showing up and seeing each other and ourselves as fully human means recognizing our fundamental dependence and that from time to time, we all are gonna step in it. <laughs> and what if we cultivated a response to that reality that not only cleaned up the mess, but built relationships and analysis and empowerment that would spur people to clean up the backyard together, to heal the rifts and the disconnects, not only between us, but within our souls. I'm here with the Reverend Dr. Cheryl Johnson, who's a friend of mine from Canada. We are both Canadians living in the States, which deserves its own conversation. <laughs> um, but Cheryl has just written a book, Serving Money, Serving God, Aligning Radical Justice, Christian Practice, and Church Life. And I'm excited to be in conversation with you. Hey, Cheryl. Hey, Sean. Thanks for the invitation. Really great to reconnect. Could you talk about, so you wrote this book. It comes out of the work of your dissertation for your PhD, um, because you now have that doctor in your title, and you spent all this time in, in this deep and beautiful and probably painful world of PhD land. 
Talk to, talk to me about like the why of this work for you. Where yeah. Did this yeah, thanks for the question. I mean, I think I, I always knew that I was interested in ethics and social justice and um, for a long time, you know, between my master's and my PhD, I really spent some time wondering, you know, should I focus on a specific, you know, justice issue or what is the sort of um, contribution I have to make here? And I think one, um, yeah, one issue or one theme that kept coming back to me was really feeling like, um, you know, my denomination and, and, you know, a lot of progressive progressive faith communities in general sort of said beautiful things and had great sort of social statements, maybe on different issues. But then I guess really feeling like there was this sense of disconnect that um, that we talked and and preached and and um, discussed and, and protested in really um, helpful ways. But then when we came to our own kind of internal finances, I really felt like a lot of that was rooted in, um, yeah, in more sort of capitalist, more sort of mainstream fundraising, you know, what um, wisdom. And so just really feeling like there was a sense of disconnect that really kept coming back for me and, and really feeling like this is a moment, especially as a lot of ma more mainline or progressive faith communities are experiencing decline. I really saw so many communities grappling with um, really difficult decisions about what do we prioritize um, in these times and really feeling like it's not the justice work often that was, that was um, what was kind of held as sort of core and essential. It was, it was often, um, you know, more just assumptions that we have to have a building or we have to have um, some of these, you know, preserve, preserve the institution in, in certain ways, but that the kind of the more kind of uh, progressive or redistributing or the, some of those commitments to justice were what were being lost. So I think for me, that was really kind of, yeah, one, one aspect of that. And then also, you know, part of my re research was reviewing a lot of the books that have been written, you know, offering wisdom for, for faith leaders about how to approach finances and really realizing that a lot of the books um, didn't seem to really, um, you know, be offering much by way of how to um, integrate commitments to justice um, into those practices. So I think that's, yeah, that's a of what I would say of, of where this came from for me. So you are a ordained minister in the United Church of Canada, which for those people in the States is similar, but not exactly the same as the United Church of Christ um, in the U.S. They have some similar roots, but also some different roots and have you're definitely a different feel, um, mm -hmm. but definitely live in that like mainstream Kind of place yeah. that you know your average Methodist church, your average UCC church, your average Lutheran church is generally kind of operating in similar ways. Mm -hmm. You know, there'll be some denominational differences in terms sure. of like governance, but like generally they're kind of economically most yeah. of the time operating in the same way. One of the stories that connected with me was you were talking to the moderator of the United Church of Canada and some conversations, and he was saying that but he was talking to like young people around the country, and exactly as you said. The theology of the church resonated with them, yeah. but when they entered the practice of the church, it didn't. There was a big disconnect. Yeah. Um, and what I've seen in our congregation mm. is that that same sense of how we live our values in the world resonates with people. And when we get scared and try to pull back to preserve ourselves, not only does like those people like leave the church because it's no longer the church that they are a part of. There's also this vitality in this life that leaves the church because those commitments really enliven mm -hmm. who we are. And that means, you know, getting to know our neighbors. That means serving our neighbors. That means participating in justice movements. Um, but that, that shift of thinking about how do these commitments apply inside the church? 
I think is one that people have, but don't always know how to articulate Mm -hmm. um, because of the paradigm of how church operates. So I'm wondering if you could talk about like the, some of the fundamental assumptions of like the financial realities of a church that kind of dominate your average church and how they think they should operate. Yeah, totally. That's a great question, Sean. So yeah, I think some of those are assumptions. I mean, a lot of them are so, um, yeah, kind of deeply baked in that they can be, um, yeah, kind of strange to even examine as assumptions that are not necessarily, you know, inherently how we have to do things. So, you know, even at a very basic level, this idea of, you know, on a personal level, what I have is mine, it's rightfully belongs to me as long as I didn't like overtly kind of steal it from someone else's pocket. Um, You know, same with churches, this idea that like, well, you know, if we have this in our in our budget in our bank you know this is ours to to consider you know ours alone to consider how it should best be used but you know as we know that the way that our personal resources have come to us you know especially for those of us with privilege often through you know intergenerational um you know inheritance um you know maybe either explicitly or just in terms of the support our families were able to offer us um in that way, you know, thinking about the industries that we've worked in that perhaps um, maybe people of color might not have have the same access to or the same ability to access the education in order to um, to be able to achieve, then, you know, then it gets a little bit murkier, you know, when we start to think about, well, you know, yeah, I mean, it, I didn't like, you know, steal it from someone else's pocket, but there definitely were systems that um, have privileged me all along the way, you know, and thinking about the like, settler identity as as non-Indigenous people um, living on Turtle Island, you know, we, we also, I feel like my family has really benefited from the land itself and from the processes of colonization. Organization, and that's really, you know, um, marginalize others. So to think about that on a personal level, and then I think we can think about that on a church level. Go ahead. Yeah, can I jump in on the church yeah, level? Yeah, please. This is please. something that we've explored a little bit. So mm. in Fort Collins, you know, Fort Collins was, um, at first it was kind of an agricultural, or first it was a fort um, that the U.S. Army used to defend Western, like, settlers against... Wow the resistance of native uh, peoples. So like, firstly, thinking about just the reason there's a settlement here in the first place of, of settlers is because of a colonization practice. But the, the reason that we have this city that we all live in, or the people who live in Fort Collins do, is because the US government gave the agricultural college a bunch of land that they basically stole from indigenous people because it's a land grant university. And so they gave them tracts of land all over Colorado, some in some near us, but also some of the south, the south areas that they had, you know, really disingenuously um, taken from uh, indigenous tribes. And then they used the money from those lands to create the institution, to fund the institution. Mm-hmm. And they still own much of that land and are still getting okay. royalties from minerals and agricultural products from those places. Um, and, you know, CSU is the major economic driver in Fort Collins. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, just thinking about, hey, the reason why a lot of us, our church started with professors from the Agricultural College coming together to start a church, their very, you know, livelihoods were connected from land theft, essentially. And so everything that comes from that has to stem from that kind of original sin, if you will. Um, of that of that reality. And so it's exactly what you're saying on a systems level, what we have is not ours in the ways that the classical mindset would have it, even though it's our name on the deed of the building, it's our name on our endowment, it's our name um, in terms of just who owns this stuff. 
Totally, totally. And we can see how these systems continue to perpetuate, you know, those churches and, and communities that have had that privilege, then, you know, we're able to, um, you know, if we have a big building, maybe we can rent out and, and sort of have rental income. Maybe we have a lot of programs that maybe a more, a poorer church that's made up more of people of color, they might not be able to, you know, offer as much programming or they have to, or they might have a, just a rented space. So they can't, they don't have that rental income coming in in the same way. So I think to think about also, yeah, both the, the side of privilege and and then also the side of more marginalized identities to sort of start to think about, okay, why, why are we so, you know, different in terms of, you know, what, what different resources, different communities have, and how are those not sort of narratives in, in a vacuum or isolation, but those are stories that are really interconnected. So um, yeah, I think that that's kind of one of those fundamental assumptions, maybe just to start us off. This Sunday, we're exploring this concept of mutual aid, mm. which, um, you know, is this idea that people who are impacted by whatever is going on work together to meet their collective needs yeah. in a way that doesn't rely on um, government, doesn't rely on kind of the nonprofit sphere, um, and are doing so not only to meet their needs, but building social relations mm -hmm. and community um, resilience and so that they can change the very um, fa like facts on the ground about that issue. So yeah, that's um, great. And you know, this is a concept that I think I was introduced to in college when I started going to university and I started to learn about and get involved in organizations like Food Not Bombs, who are you know taking food that would be thrown away and are cooking it with and for people who are living on the street or who are otherwise economically vulnerable um, and are building kind of those sorts of connections and relationships um, with those folks. Um, as a very different model than, you know, a soup kitchen or yeah. a kind of a charity that is focused on um, getting people connected to government assistance programs. What I've realized, both within myself and also within our community, is this concept of mutual aid is, is definitely um, like alien or f like really not um, one that a lot of people within mainline churches have ever really encountered because of the privilege and also the politics of it. And I wondered why you think that disconnect exists. Like, why do you think there's that struggle uh, between um, this sort of concept and the people that make up mainline churches? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, yeah, I think you're so right. Privileges definitely can be part of it. I think that, you know, there's one of the other assumptions that's so baked into kind of, you know, white white privilege, you know, this idea of self-sufficiency that's really, really prized. And I think often, um, you know, even people who do, do want to support their, their fellow, um, you know, faith community members or, or people around them, you know, they think, yeah, if a neighbor came and asked to, you know, borrow flour, I would give it to them, but they don't ask. So how do I know? And I think, you know, a lot of it comes back to me too, to think about, you know, I don't know how your prayers are in your church, but I think in my church, you know, we, we pray for people with certain types of health conditions, um, you know, maybe not so much the mental health um, side, we're working to, on that. But you know, when we don't really talk about and we don't really even know maybe who is who is struggling or who um, might need something, then it's really hard to, to meet those needs. So I think, yeah, you're so right to, to talk about, you know, that privilege can be a lot of it that maybe some people haven't really needed it, but also maybe people haven't felt like there's been a mechanism to ask for what they need or to offer what they have to give, or there isn't that kind of robust mechanism of people seeing, oh, you know, someone's offering 
doing this. Someone has a lead on a job. Someone has, um, you know, something to give. And, and some churches actually do that quite well. You know, I've been part of churches that have really active, you know, message boards and listservs where people are all the time sort of uh, doing that kind of exchange. But if there isn't that mechanism set up, then sometimes the kind of subtle norm is, you know, we, d- we don't, this isn't a place where we talk about that, right? So I think that that can be another barrier. I think you're so, I think you're so right. Um, I mean, I see in our community when, when there is a need that someone is making public, there's a pouring of support, even sometimes an overwhelming support that really challenges that sense of Mm -hmm. self-sufficiency. Like, oh, should I really accept this? Like, I know when I got sick, I got got a kidney Mm -hmm. stone a couple of years ago which is awful, no fun. And I remember someone offering one of the other ministers like, hey, do you want to like set up a meals for your family? Mm, yeah. And I remember being like, oh, I'm the minister. Like, is it going to be weird to be accepting help? And it's like, yeah. and yet, like, I don't think any of my congregants would think it would be weird to like offer support to someone who's in their community, even if they happen to be, you know, one of the paid ministers of the congregation. And I just remember that tension and we like tried to get through. And then I was like, okay, no, we just like, we need, we need help. (laughs) And it was amazing to have those, like that food show up, but it took that sense of getting over that sense of self-sufficiency, that, that sense of we should be able to do this by ourselves. It's not even like, that sense of I can do this by myself. It's that I should be able to, or that image of I should be able to do this by myself. Totally. Um, and so like how we build a culture that sees that sort of like acknowledgement of the reality of our dependence on each other as not, um, as not a admission that we are unworthy or failing mm-hmm. is, is definitely a big, like almost theological work to be doing, spiritual work for us to be doing. Definitely. Um, and, you know, I was, and yet it takes a degree of, uh, you know, vulnerability and trust. Um, and I know I was reading in your book where you were talking about some, you know, experiments in some communities that are, that are trying out some different ways of being that kind of step into this. And I was really struck by the example of the circle of hope. Mm-hmm. a church in the Philadelphia area and their debt annihilation program, because not only is it a powerful example of mutual aid in the ways of people coming together um, to solve problems that they all have in community, um, but it also demonstrated a degree of like vulnerability about something that is very taboo in terms of our, uh, our finances, our debt, um, would you talk a little bit about what you learned about that program and what you saw as you learned about it? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, as you mentioned, um, this is a program out of a church called Circle of Hope. And basically what they did is they realized that a lot of people in their community were struggling with credit card debt. So what they did is they created some small groups of of people who all had some kind of credit card debt, and then they found out who had the highest interest rate. And then while everyone continued to make their own minimum payments, they would put um, additional resources towards paying off whoever had the highest interest rate. So using the power of community to hopefully end up 
um, paying less interest in the end. They also, it wasn't just the people with debt on their own, but they also had um, seed funding um, from, you know, our funding coming in from the, the broader church budget as well. And, you know, and really just kind of setting up a culture in general of, of mutual aid too, so that hopefully people um, in the future wouldn't have to, or wouldn't be as likely to have to get into debt in the first place. So yeah, to really break, break that stigma in terms of talking about it, but also really use the power of community to, um, yeah, help to get people out of these situations um, of debt. And so, you know, they have a really active, you know, secondhand um, ministry, and they're really trying to help people, um, you know, connect to, to work and all these other things that hopefully um, will help in the end so that people not only can get out of this particular situation of debt, but hopefully they can um, get connected to um, the, the supports that they need to, to not have to get, go into debt in the future, or that they could, you know, maybe even approach um, folks in their community if they were, if they had a financial, you know, need that the, the debt isn't the only option to, to get out of that. And I think it's so powerful. I mean, I think one of the things that we're, we know is an issue. In, in our world is, is loneliness, is isolation, is all, you know, I think the mutual aid, I think that's one of the, not only a side benefit, but really an integral benefit that it really gets us out of our own little bubbles, our own homes. It gets us, you know, going to meet meet folks. It's getting us to, I mean, it, it's just, um, I think that there, that's also another element that's so important that people, you know, sharing the, sharing their realities, sharing what they're, they're struggling with and um, yeah. And coming into one another's lives in a deeper way. I just I can imagine the sense of vulnerability because like a part of the program was like being completely financially transparent with everyone else. Yeah. Just like, hey, this is my financial life. Yeah. And, you know, that who we are, you know, is not just encapsulated by our financial life, but, you know, it tells a story of the realities of our life, um, which, you know, I think I would feel really uncomfortable sharing. Sure. All of that. Sure. Um, it, but it also, I imagine, invites people to be like fellow, like a, like supporters of each other, fellow learners in terms of like figuring out how to navigate the financial system. But, you know, I have like master's degrees and I find it confusing to figure out like my healthcare bills when they come, especially in this country. Totally. Do not understand them. They're like, this is not a bill, but it looks like a bill. Like it's confusing. Um, like just, so like you have this set of resources of people who are in the same situation. So they understand it. They're not going to judge you because they're in that space too. You have a community that's seeding you and supporting it with, you know, you know, resources and some financial coaching and some kind mm -hmm. of structure for that space. Like what a supported way to move out of a sense of like isolation around, you know, this thing that is probably filling you with a lot of fear and maybe a lot of shame to bring that kind of into the light of community. And then to have a sense that you're not alone in it, that like other people are willing to help you. Like that's a pretty powerful experience for a church to be centering. Um, and yet the church isn't doing this just because like it's a need for, for their people, which would be a good enough reason. They're doing it because as they free people out of debt, people then have freedom to invest in justice work and community work and church work because they're freed from the psychic and the financial, you know, uh, uh, bonds of that sort of debt. That's like totally. a really powerful thing for a church to be doing. It is. Well, and I think this comes back to one of the other kind of assumptions that I think is based 
um, rooted in a lot of our, our approaches to finance and fundraising is this idea that like the only reason that people don't want to give more is because they're greedy, because they want their money for themselves. But I think that's actually really a fallacy. I think we live in a society where we don't have a very strong social safety net. We all know horror stories of people who seem like they were doing fine even, and then all of a sudden one disaster happens and they are, you know, very much struggling. So I think that, you know, um, that's this is another reason that we need to do mutual aid and need to talk about our needs because, yeah, how much more freedom would people maybe have to be, you know, to give away or to redistribute or to, you know, even just for their own mental health, maybe make a career shift or whatever, you know, they're feeling called to do that if, um, if they knew that they had a community backing them up, that they maybe could take more risks. And I mean, we see this all the time. We, we know that entrepreneur is like the best predictor of someone being a successful entrepreneur is having that family support. People are freer to be creative, to take risks, to try new things when they know that they have um, some security to fall back on. And so, um, you know, how can we sort of create that sense of, of safety net and of social um, cohesion so that people can, you know, live, um, not just, you know, necessarily start businesses to make billions of dollars, but to, to really do the thing that they are feeling called to do or to, you know, take, make that um, risky gift that's maybe at the edge of their, their budget because they know that they have um, a place to fall back on if they do encounter hard times, that they don't have to build their own personal safety net just for themselves because they'll be alone if they um, encounter, um, you know, need. I mean, that vision of people free to risk stepping into not only their deepest truths to respond to the callings of their heart and their community. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is a really liberating image. Yeah. And I guess the last question that I want to ask is, I really appreciated the, you know, you you set up the book talking about the the, the the idea of can the church serve two masters right can you serve mm-hmm. god and can you serve money and of course of course the answer is no right that there's when you set up that binary to say that those are the two things there's no way to kind of fulfill either um without having to choose yeah and i feel that dichotomy really strongly in church life that there are um moments where i see the power of this institution that mm-hmm. you know, I've dedicated my life to, um, you know, the, the ways it is transformative to individuals, it's mm-hmm. transformative to our community, it's, you know, transforming in ways that, like, I can't even talk about because of, you know, the things that I, I hold in confidence, um, yeah. and then the realities of all of the struggles to live into our values and the ways that you know, we hurt one another in the realities of being human and just the ways that we get stuck in these kind of capitalist mindsets and can't figure out how to work through that. I guess the question that I want to end with is, it's not, is the church redeemable? Because that's an unfair mm-hmm. question. But where, what about the heart of the church, do you think, lends itself to be able to find a path through these sorts of questions? Yeah, I love that question, Sean. I love that. I mean, I think that there's so much that we we have. I think that we are, you know, I think churches of, and faith communities are ultimately places where we talk about the things of, of ultimate meaning and that we, we have this long, long story of people and this connection to human history. And, and we can see that, you know, societies have taken different shapes and forms. We have the global witness of, of different expressions of faith all around us. So I think we can get out of our, our kind of 
mindset of this is how it has to be, because we know it hasn't always been this way and that there are people around the world living in these other ways and living, you know, so I think that it can be really, um, really a gift to sort of constantly be bringing ourselves back to these deep values, to these deep stories and to ask, okay, so what measures up and, and what lines up and what aligns with that and what, what doesn't really matter so much. I think that that can also be very freeing because I think sometimes people think about this like, okay, now we have to also bring in this justice lens. This is this other thing. It's, oh my gosh, one more consideration. But I think for me, it's actually very freeing because it also says, yeah, these are our things of ultimate concern, which are ultimately, I think, a big part of what faith communities are about, the things that matter most. And then there's the rest, you know, that's the chaff that can just, you know, kind of blow away. That's like, yeah, this has been the way we've operated for a while, but we don't necessarily have to continue to do to do that in this way. And if the things that matter most, if we preserve those and if we invest in those and we really nurture those, um, you know, we might also be freed from other burdens that perhaps um, we've been carrying. So I think ultimately for me, at least, this is really liberating work. It's really creative work. I mean, I really think that, um, you know, as, as a Christian, the story of like, you know, death and resurrection, things things end, things don't last forever. We know human, human life doesn't last forever, but um, there's also um, tremendous possibility when we kind of let go of the things we we need to let go of and, and see what flourishes. It reminds me of something that we say in all of our newcomer classes. We um, share the mission of the congregation, which in short is to unleash courageous love in Northern Colorado and beyond. Mm, I love that. I love um, that. And then we say, you know, we ask people, oh, like, what, what, you know, what does this mean to you? We, we unpack the definition of courageous love, mm -hmm. which for us mm -hmm. is the intersection between the love of self, the love of other, and the love of the whole, or what mm -hmm. is the um, And then I say something like, and that means that the mission of the church isn't to have a building, and it isn't to have right. staff, and it isn't to have a specific program, and it isn't to, and it's just all these things that it's like, it's not the mission. Yeah. Hopefully yeah. all of those things serve the mission. Right. Mm -hmm. All of those things should be in alignment with exactly what you're saying with that, that the core heart of the church. But it's so easy to forget that those are just hopefully the vessels to yeah, hold exactly. the, the spirit of the work and not the, the work itself. Um, because I think sometimes we have to, you know, have a deep soul searching and discernment to say no to something that served us in the past or we thought served us in the past um, and move through kind of grief to be able to say, actually, our mission is calling us somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and that can mean transforming. And I think that's one of the beautiful parts of the Christian story that you're just talking about is that transformation is a transformation of moving through death, but it is a promise of new life um, and new life, not just um, for the few. I mean, our universalist ancestors always, you know, would would tell us that that, that new life is for all. Yeah. And so how are we um, moving through that process to, you know, be beacons of that, um, mm -hmm. our partners, neighbors in that work of totally a new life for all. Amen. I am so appreciative, Cheryl, that we could have this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. If people want to check out your book, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, so it's uh, out through Fortress Press, so you can order it through the Fortress Press um, website, but also it's on the all the other places too. So <laughs> don't love giving money to Amazon, but there's you know it's on all the other major bookstores. So 
And I will say, I know um, often for Unitarian Universalists, people who have uh, religious trauma from Christian um, communities um, can be hesitant to pick up a Christian book. Um, I'll say, firstly, that I think Cheryl is worthy of your trust um, to (laughs) to explore it, because not only is it coming from a place of deep um, appreciation for the diversity of Christian practice um, and Christian um, perspectives. Um, it also is really value aligned with how Unitarian Universalists move in the world. Um, and the, you know, often when I'm reading Christian texts that come from the evangelical world, I'm in that space where I usually am skipping all of the theological ramifications and just getting to like the things that they're saying because I'm like, I don't really care how you you're justifying this in your twisted, terrible theology, but I'm curious what you're saying when you get down to it. Um, mm-hmm. I That is not the experience I had as I was moving through this book. I really found the stories and the narratives to be really applicable to how we do church, but mm-hmm. set in, the, in a Christian story. And I think that we are all set in a Christian story in North America. And mm-hmm. so I think um, for Unitarian Universalists, it is a book that I think will help us ask good questions about our churches and how we function um, and how we can pick up those shared, I think, values alignment questions around uh, being stewards of the climate, being in right relationship, uh, reconciliation with indigenous peoples, thinking about reparations for black and enslaved peoples, like all of these questions are wrapped up in this book in a way that I think um, is accessible um, for non-Christian people. Thank you. Thanks, Cheryl. What a great conversation. Thank you so much, Cheryl and Sean. If you would like to check out Cheryl's book, we have got a link to it in our show notes for this episode. As we wrap up our time together, I hope you're feeling maybe a little more grounded, a little more clear about what and whom you serve, and maybe even inspired to explore the ways that you might bring mutual aid into your relationships or the communities that you're a part of. I'm so glad that you made the time to share this episode with us. If you have a moment, it would mean so much if you could leave a positive review for us on Apple Podcasts. And if there's anyone in your life who you think would resonate with the big questions we're wrestling with over here, please send them a link to the podcast and spread the word. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so glad that you joined us.